Yeah. So anyway, I was saying, the reason that they call graduation ceremonies commencement is because it's not what you're graduating from. You're, it's about what you're ready to commence, what you're ready to engage in, to set in motion, to start. Your post-high school education likely equipped you with some basic sets of knowledge required for whatever it is you're going to do in life. But most importantly, higher education is supposed to help you learn how to learn. Maybe you graduated with a teaching degree. I know about a third of you have. Um, you've done the work. You, you know your stuff. You even did well in classroom management while you were a student teacher. Uh, but then you begin your career, and you get, you get told that you are teaching a subject that you feel inadequate to teach. You're not, you've not mastered it yet. Or you can't get through to that struggling student after you've used every bag uh, trick in your bag of tricks that you learned in school, and you're wondering, what am I going to do? Our formal education, if done well, should equip us with a foundation on which we can build a core set of truths that then we can take and apply as the situation warrants. In a way, that's what Paul has done for us at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. For 57 verses, Paul has responded to the struggle that the, some of the Corinthians were having in believing in the resurrection of the dead. And like a master teacher, Paul begins 1 Corinthians 15 by setting out a foundation. In verses 1 through 12, Paul reminds the Corinthians that the gospel he preached to them was handed down to him. He literally recites what most scholars believe was one of the earliest creeds of Christianity. The gospel which Paul preached is the gospel of Jesus, the same gospel of the church. So his point is to not believe in the resurrection may lead to some kind of faith or religious path, but it's not a Christian faith or, religious, uh, or religion. Jesus was resurrected. His message was the arrival of the kingdom of God and the future resurrection of all those who have placed their faith in him. And the resurrection of the dead who are in Christ was and is the message of the church from the very first generation of Jesus' followers until now. It's the basics. It's the foundation. Now, on Easter, week, uh, Easter Sunday two weeks ago, we looked at verses 12 through 28, which Paul applies some form of logic to their complaints. He says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ can't be raised from the dead. And if Christ isn't raised from the dead, then we're all as good as dead, still stuck in the consequence of our sins, headed for judgment. One of the ways he illustrates that point, and this is going to scratch for some of your itching for verse 29, is the confusing passage in verse 29. He writes, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised, then why are they baptized for them? Sounds weird, right? That's a strange thing to say. It is really weird, and it's really weird because there are zero references in Christian history in Jewish history or pagan history of people being baptized for the dead. Why does Paul then mention it? I believe Paul mentions baptisms for the dead because whatever they were, some of the Corinthians were doing them. Stay with me now. What were they doing? What was it they were trying to accomplish in baptizing, being baptized for the dead? Now here our interpretation really falls on one little word. It's the word for, in Greek, huper. Being baptized for the dead. Is it that people were being baptized for the dead, as in 
on behalf of the dead, or is it that they were being baptized for the dead, as in for the sake of someone who has died? Knowing that Paul taught a gospel in which the sacraments of communion and, and baptism are not magical, that these sacraments for Paul were responses of faith, it's hard to believe that the Corinthians were being baptized for dead people. Okay? It's like Katie and Joe are married. Let's pretend that Katie wasn't a Christian. Joe is a Christian. Katie dies, and Joe, I, I just know she had Jesus in her heart, so I'm going to be baptized for Katie. That doesn't make any sense in, in Christian theology or in Paul's worldview. It just, you, you can only respond in your own faith, right? So that doesn't really make sense. More likely, it's like this. Katie and Joe are married. We'll make Katie the Christian this time. Katie's a Christian, and Joe is not. And Katie, in her deep faith, passes away. Joe is not a Christian. But at the service, the pastor, maybe it was Paul himself, is speaking about Katie and the hope that he has in her life as a resurrected person. And Joe, all of a sudden, all the teachings he'd heard and rejected all those years come back, and he says to himself, I want to be baptized for my wife. I love her. I want eternal life. I believe. And so is baptized for the dead, so that he can then be with her. It's kind of like an old song, but anyway, I won't sing it. I did that in a small group, but it wouldn't go well. <clears throat> Paul's point here in this passage is not the merits of baptism for the dead. It's kind of like the kid who never plays piano, uh, never practices piano, but it will spend three hours a day trying to beat that level on that video game, and the child's mom says, Oh, so you don't have time to play the piano, but you've got three hours to play a video game every single day. Now, mom is not advocating saying playing a video game for three hours is a good thing. She's simply making an ad hoc point. You say you don't have time to practice, but you're wasting your time doing these three hours of video games, okay? That, in the same way, is what Paul is saying. If you don't believe in the resurrection, why are some of you getting baptized for the dead? It doesn't make any sense. That's his point. So Paul established that the resurrection from the dead is at the basic core of the gospel of Jesus. He then argues that if there's no resurrection, then there's no hope for you and I because we're dead in our sin. And last week, we looked at the third point of Paul's master class in the resurrection. If there is a resurrection, what will our existence be like? Like, okay, there's a resurrection. What's that going to be like for me and for you? In short, Paul's answer is, It'll be physical, physical, embodied. Paul contrasts our current natural bodies with our future resurrected spiritual bodies. And as we saw last week, the terms natural and spiritual don't have anything to do with the stuff that our bodies are made out of. It has everything to do with the stuff our bodies run on. So our current bodies run on natural stuff, food and, and water and our, literally the word behind the natural here is suke, where we get the word psyche. It's just the natural way of being. They age, don't they? Some of you are still in denial, but they do. And they deteriorate. And they are imperfect, even though they're great sometimes. But in the end, our bodies, the way they are in their natural state, they fail us. They're prone to disease and deformity and weakness. And even our emotions and our brain chemistry and our gender identity, everything can be a thing of confusion in our natural bodies the way they are. But one day, 
Paul says, will be transformed not into spirits, but into those who have spiritual bodies, meaning they run on spiritual stuff. They run on Holy Spirit. They don't die. They don't get sick. They don't fail us. They don't have the same limitations that our natural bodies do. Hallelujah. And so confident of this is Paul that he raises this taunt song over death. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And now, at the very end, Paul gives his resurrection class a commencement speech. It's one verse, and I'm still going to ask you to stand while I read it so you don't fall asleep. First Corinthians, verse 15, chapter 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, your hard work, that's what that means, is not in vain in the Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Lord, thank you for this commencement speech, this sending of Paul. And even though we are so far removed from his first audience, I pray that these words would send us out, would encourage us, would teach us to live differently, to see life differently, and help us to build on the hope of your resurrection. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> we talked briefly about commencement speeches at the beginning of the message. Let's see how Paul's commencement spe uh, speech stacks up to uh, the criteria. It's short, one verse. Uh, there's no bad jokes in it, so that's pretty good. And it definitely looks forward, as if saying the resurrection means very little if it's just a theological concept in your head. But it is more than that. And instead of it, think of it this way, because there is a resurrection, well, let's unpack this sentence and see what Paul has to say, what his charge is to us as the church. First of all, I just love to point out what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, wait quietly for the Lord to raise the dead and to transform you. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, hide the truth deep in your hearts and don't make any waves in life. Jesus will come, but until then, just lay low. He doesn't say that at all. That would be more of a consignment speech than a commencement speech. Kind of just like, oh, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. I'll just keep my nose to the grindstone and wait for God to come back. Instead, Paul calls us to commence, to commence our life in the Lord, to build with Jesus on resurrection hope. Paul calls the church to be steadfast. That doesn't mean to stand still, not stand fast, but steadfast, moving relentlessly in a direction dictated by the resurrection. And what direction is that that he's calling us to move in? One is to be immovable, undeterred despite opposition. Two, abounding in the work of the Lord. That means doing the work of the Lord in abundance. 
And all of this with the confidence, three, that what you do is not in vain in the Lord. Now, I see at least three major arenas that this commencement speech plays out, and all three of them are in 1 Corinthians 15. The first arena is political. And I don't just mean, I know like the elections are coming up, I don't just mean like our elected officials political, although that involves that, but I'm talking about the body politic, like social, how we live together in community, be it government or church or just uh, neighborhood association or whatever it is, the politic of life. To understand this arena, we need to go all the way back to Genesis 1. Because in Genesis 1, we read what things are for and who made them. God made heavens and the earth and the sun and the moon and the stars and the mountains and the fish and the animals and the birds. He made humans, men and women, says Genesis 1, 26 and 27, men and women made in the image of God. Now, what's fascinating to me is that this creation story in Genesis 1 looks very similar to the Babylonian creation story, looks very similar to the Canaanite creation story, and many others in the ancient Near East. But all of them have one thing in common, and that is that people were seen to be made in those creation stories as an accident and as slaves for the God. And here's another interesting, all those other ancient Near Eastern creation stories, humans were made as slaves except for one human, and that was always the man, and that was always the king. The king was said to be made in the image of God. Everyone else was his subjects. Now, who controlled the lore in those days? It was the king. Pretty good for the king if I just say, hey, I'm the king, and God said, I'm the guy, and you're all supposed to be my slaves. Okay? There's one ancient Near Eastern creation story that looks like the rest, but is very, very different. And of course, that would be the biblical creation story. And in the biblical creation story, here's the difference. There's only one God. He creates the stuff on purpose, and he creates everybody in his image, the men and the women. And eventually, he's going to call everyone to be a priesthood of believers, not just one priest or one king, but co-regency of his creation. You inherently have been created with extreme dignity and worth. Just as worthy and just as dignified as the people sitting to your right and left and behind you and in front of you. That's a, ma a massive, massive difference. Ever since sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, our role as image bearers has been corrupted. We form governments and dictatorships. We grasp for power and prestige, and we do it oftentimes at the expense of other people. We as a species have done a poor job as God's image bearers. And so God sent the ultimate image bearer to do what we couldn't do. Jesus, God in the flesh, the perfect human. And when he rose from the grave, he was handed the kingdom. His name is the Christ. Christ, by the way, and sometimes we forget this, is not Jesus' last name. It's a title. It's the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah. So when we say Jesus, that's why you all, most often hear me say Jesus the Christ. It's his title, not his last name. We don't know what his last name is. Jesus of Nazareth is how people refer to him. But Jesus the Christ, the hope of the world. And as Christians, we say that Jesus is Lord. Therefore, we are saying that no one else is Lord. Paul, when he said Jesus is Lord, meant, Caesar, you're not Lord. 
And when we say Jesus is Lord, we're saying banking industry, you're not Lord. Political powers, be it the next U.S. president, you're not Lord. Or any other human leader, thank goodness, isn't Lord. As people with resurrection hope, we're called to speak out against injustice and oppression. We're called to take the reality of Jesus' lordship and the resurrection and apply it to our, our current social climate, our current political climate. And for those who live in places where speaking out against injustice is dangerous, the resurrection means we don't need to fear. God will bring justice. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 25. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet, under Christ's feet. The way oppressive regimes deal with voices of truth, when they can get away with it, is to silence those voices, to imprison those voices, or to kill those voices. But because of Jesus, through the promise of resurrection, he's taken away the permanence of death. Death cannot silence resurrection people forever. For the rest of us, for most of us, we don't daily risk our lives if we speak out politically. In fact, we have all these crazy tools where we're almost a little bit too flip with our stuff on Facebook because we know no one's going to hold us accountable for that line that we just put on there or our tweets, or whatever other social media we use. We, maybe we should check ourselves before we spew so much stuff out there, but that's another topic. See, it's tempting for us to align ourselves with evil powers because it can advance us socially, economically, it can advance our careers if we say the right things, even though if they're, they're not the right things. Just look at the recent expose on the Panama Papers. I wonder how many politicians and business leaders megachurch pastors. <laughs> I wonder how many names are going to be exposed by this thing because, you know what, no one's going to find out. I'll just fudge the truth a little bit. One of my mentors and one of the great preachers of our generation, he's generation past mine, is Daryl Johnson. He's going to speak, by the way, at the joint worship gathering on Memorial Day weekend. You don't want to miss that if you can help it. He was a pastor in the Philippines during the reign of Ferdinand Marcos. People were terrified to speak out against Marcos because of the, his terrible crimes against humanity. And those who did speak out, the, the rare jur journalists, for example, strangely went missing and sometimes washed up on a beach, deceased. And one Sunday, Daryl was preaching out of Daniel chapter 2, in which the oppressive king Nebuchadnezzar has a disturbing dream that no one can interpret. No one except this Jewish exile named Daniel. Daniel had been captured by Nebuchadnezzar, taken to Babylon as a prisoner, and then as a servant of the king. And God gave Daniel revelation to understand the dream. And what it comes down to is this. What Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar is, your power comes from my God, and if you align yourself with him, he can work in and through you, even the Babylonian king. But if you set yourself up against him, you will fall. You will fall. After the sermon, Daryl noticed a visitor after the congregation began to spread out. There was a visitor he'd not seen before. The man had lost all the color in his face. He was visibly shaking 
uh, shaking and shaken. And so Daryl went and talked to this man. And the man had been sent from Washington, D.C. the day before. And his job was that he was a marketing guru. And you see, the United States government had made some trade agreements with the Philippines and had strategic military installations there. And so they needed that relationship with Ferdinand Marcos. And the government was afraid to speak out against his uh, inhumane treatment of people. And so they sent this marketing guru from Washington to come help Ferdinand Marcos become more palatable, say that again, um, to, the, to the American public. This man, after hearing the message of Daniel 2, was completely conflicted at, the po- at this point. And Daryl said to him, what are you going to do? And he said, I know what I'm supposed to do. I believe that tomorrow when I go to meet with Ferdinand Marcos, I'm supposed to do one thing. I'm supposed to read Daniel chapter 2 and not do anything else. And he was terrified. The next day, this man read Daniel chapter 2, said nothing else, lived to tell the tale, and less than a year later, Ferdinand Marcos was gone. Evil regimes will not stand. We don't need to be afraid because there is a resurrection. Paul taught that since there's a resurrection, we don't need to fear the powers of evil or the powers that be as long as we're abounding in the work of the Lord. We don't need to fear because death doesn't have the last word. Amen? The second arena I see in Paul's writings is the ethical and moral arena. Paul's obedience to Jesus led him to some tough situations. For example, he was evangelizing people in the town of Ephesus. He calls these folks wild beasts because they almost killed him several times, like stoned him almost to death, beat him up, dragged him out, tried to arrest him. In verse 32, he says, hey, if the dead aren't raised, then let us just eat, drink, Be merry, for tomorrow we die. If there's no resurrection, then obedience to Jesus just isn't worth it. If there's no resurrection, we're just going to die anyway, so live it up. There's no accountability. Who cares? But that's not the case. And Paul's whole point is that the resurrection is real. And therefore, what we do with our bodies, with our words, with our lives, it all matters. In verse 34 of chapter 15, Paul says, Become sober-minded as you ought, and stop sinning. I mean, this is pretty blunt. Um, and, uh, some of you have no knowledge of God to your shame. And remember, he's talking to the church. He's not talking to people who, of course, don't know God yet, because that would be kind of a low blow. But l- last week, when we looked at the resurrection body, we saw how there will be continuity and discontinuity, right, between how we are now and how our resurrection body will be. And I tend, just my default is to tend to focus on the discontinuity, because I'm a broken person, and I I, I tend to focus on the parts of my body and my mind and my psyche that don't work right or betray me. I look forward to the day when, when my knee, which has been repaired but still hurts all the time, that won't be an issue, and uh, I, won't, I won't get winded. I'll be a better soccer player or whatever it's going to be. Um, I look forward to the discontinuity part, like how my body will be better. But let's not forget the continuity part. Yes, my brain chemistry, 
in the new body will make my mind sharper and less prone to delusion and sinful habits, but I'm not becoming a different person. I might be becoming new and improved, Chris, but I'm not becoming Steve or somebody else, right? It's like when you sell a new product, like you've got Tide, and then new and improved Tide is still Tide, it's just better, right? So there's continuity in our new bodies as well. And Dallas Willard used to talk about discipleship as getting acclimatized to new life in God's kingdom. It's not so much about not doing certain things. It's more about human flourishing. Sure, you can say, lying is bad, don't do that. Okay. Or stealing is bad, you shouldn't do that. Um, But that's only part of the equation. Lying is bad because it stunts my formation as an image bearer of God. And lying hurts other people. And it makes me less alive and therefore less human. Sin, whatever it is, kills. It leads to death. Listen to this excerpt from the Wall Street Journal. This is from Easter Sunday. Frank Hodge uh, passed this along. I'm quoting from the Wall Street Journal. Need I say that again? What difference does Easter make in the life of the Christian? The message of Easter is all at once easy to understand and yet radical, subversive, and life-changing. Easter means that nothing is impossible with God. Moreover, that life life triumphs over death, love triumphs over hatred, hope triumphs over despair, and that suffering is not the last word. Easter says, above all, that Jesus, the Christ, is Lord. Now, that's an odd thing to say in a secular newspaper, I'm still quoting. But I'm merely stating a central Christian belief. And if he is Lord, and if you're a Christian, then what he says has a claim on you. His teachings are invitations, to be sure, but they're also commands. Love your neighbors, forgive, care for the poor, live a simple life, put the needs of others before your own. Jesus' message still has the power to make us feel uncomfortable as it did in first century Palestine. It was just as much a, a challenge to pray for your enemies in antiquity as it is today. It was no easier to hear Jesus' judgment against excess and wealth, uh, uh, the excess of the wealthy during a time of degrading poverty as it is today. It was just as subversive a message to be asked to pray for your persecutors as it is now, end quote. Because Jesus rose, because we who align ourselves with him will raise, his claim on us matters. Thanks be to God, he claims us. It's pretty rad. So we see the arena of the politic, the social. We see the arena of uh, the resurrection comes to bear on our ethical and moral life. And finally, the third arena should be of zero surprise to you who have made Lettered Streets Covenant Church your church family. The third arena where Paul's commencement speech plays out in our everyday lives is in the area of vocation, our calling, the work that we do. Whether you're a student or a parent or a nurse or retired, we all have to wrestle with the existential question, what am I here for? Is all of this effort even worth it? Does anything I do truly matter in the scheme of things? 
And for those who have been injured or laid off or recently retired, what value do I have now that I've stopped producing in the way that I used to produce? The good news is that because of the resurrection, everything we do in Christ has lasting value. Everything we do in Christ has lasting value. Now, that's a sermon in itself, a sermon I've preached on Sundays before. It's a sermon I've preached with you over coffee several times. It's a sermon that we proclaim during prayer times on the third Sunday of the month when we're praying for different vocational groups. But since right now we're at the close of a sermon, I'm not beginning a new one, I want to leave you with two reasons your vocation, your station in life actually matters. And these two reasons should give you two ways of thinking about your work. First, your work matters because you will last. Because you will last. You will be resurrected. Your work is an extension of you. Whether you create computer programs, make art, build bridges or houses, whether you use your retired time to serve other people or you stay at home to raise children, whether you're a student or a teacher or whether you cleaned wounds or you clean toilets, the way you do your work is an expression of who you are. And the choices you make, the choices you make in your work, in your vocation in life, are made out of who you are and will dictate who you are becoming. Work, whatever form it takes, is character forming. And your character lasts because you will last in the resurrection. That's part of that continuity piece. You may not like everything about your work, but as long as it's not unethical work or immoral work, you can choose to go about your work in a way that blesses others and forms your character in Christ-likeness. That's the power that we have in our work. By the way, you notice that this continuity piece is important because if Paul's a big preacher on the resurrection, right? I mean, we totally get that. He's always talking about it. First, chapter 15 is dedicated to it. The rest of 1 Corinthians before this point, Paul is talking to the people like quit have, uh, committing adultery quit worshiping idols quit ruining your soul with these decisions that you're making why would that matter if there was discontinuity if if when christ comes back we simply get a new body and a new conscience and a new everything it really wouldn't matter how we live but paul's argument is it does matter because there's continuity what we do now forms our character we carry that part of us uh, with us. You know, part of what trips us up in, in life, I think, is, is things like uh, hormones and uh, brain chemistry and uh, past wounds. Um, some of us are more prone to certain sins and behaviors than others. I mean, we just, sometimes we're set up with a bad hand, right? And all of us have weak spots because of things that have happened to us or whatever. Um, and, and so part of the good news of the resurrected body is that those things will be dealt with. Like, you'll be healed from your past wounds, and your brain will work properly, and, you know, you'll be able to um, uh, have, have better check of your hormones if we even have those at all. I don't know what it's going to be like, okay? But the other stuff, 
the, the, the ruts and the habits that we make because of our choices now, that stuff we actually can have some control over. And that's why discipleship is important. That's why becoming like Christ now is important because that carries over. You know, you may not be successful in everything you attempt at your work or in your vocation, but your character will endure. God cares more about your eternal character than your present ego. And I suspect death to your ego will actually be good for your future character. So that's the first reason why your work matters, because you will last. And your work is one of the most formative, character-forming things in your life. Second, your work matters if done in Christ because the world will last. Not as it is. All evil and oppression and darkness and corrupt businesses, clear cuts on sides of hills and strip mines and polluted rivers and Justin Bieber songs and most Christian radio stations, they'll all be gone. Maybe the last two one can hope, but but the things sown in love, done in Christ, will be represented in the new kingdom. They'll be enhanced, tried by fire, impurities burned away, but the beauty and goodness and fruitfulness will all be exemplified. And that's why your work matters when it's done in Christ and it's done for good and in love. Because it will last too. It will be tried by fire and will endure and be more beautiful than you could possibly imagine. I had a theology teacher who was also a, a craftsman uh, with wood and he was waxing eloquent one time about this beautiful deck that he was building out on Galliano Island with all this special wood and everything it was all you know fair trade and not from Brazilian rainforest and all this stuff and he really like that was an illustration like he thinks in some way this deck is going to be represented because he he formed each piece in love and the joining was all done by hand and he he his vision for this deck was to entertain people to have retreats out and so all the lives he would touch through this piece of art would be represented. Tommy's building a deck right now. I don't know if it's that beautiful, but yeah, it's pretty nice. Paul's commencement speech to his class on the resurrection is full of life, and it's a charge to abound in the work of the Lord because nothing you and I do in Christ is in vain. And that is very good news. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we... Um, are not just here to follow a set of rules or philosophy. And you know, we're not just lemmings uh, making widgets or um, <laughs> spinning our wheels waiting for the real life to happen. But you so dignify us by giving us meaningful endeavors. And I pray for those of my brothers and sisters who are burning out or are burnt out, who can't imagine why their work or what their life matters right now. I pray that you would open up fresh eyes and encourage and guide and help us, Lord, to reflect your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, to be full of your life Blessing those around us in your name.